Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. And welcome to my favorite time of the week. And this time, um, Ben is going to take the lead, being a, uh, having trained in microbiology and this being a personal passion of his. So um, we're very lucky to have uh, Isabel, or Izzy Fox, who um, runs Luminous Ventures, a venture capital business. And I've always been very interested in this. And she was recommended to us as an inspiring leader. And she certainly is. She's very humble as well. So she'll say, no, no, I'm not. But she is. So Izzy. Without further ado, welcome. It's lovely to have you on the the, uh, the series. Um, and I'll Thank hand you. over to Ben now. Hi, Izzy. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, so, so good to have you um, on, on the uh, series and uh, really interested to hear about um, your work and, and, and what you're investing in. But um, just to sort of set the scene, it'd be great to just um, understand um, your, your, your current role and um, uh, Luminous Technologies. Uh, if you could give us like an overview, that'd be great. Yeah, of course. Um, thanks, Ben. Um, so Luminous Ventures, essentially, we did a management buyout two years ago from a private equity house, which gave us the chance to really look at our thesis again. So in the private equity house, Max and myself had been doing early stage investing into healthcare companies. Um, and essentially, like when we left, we were able to you know, rethink and essentially we were useless at consumer products. So anything with a, the consumer element, we just didn't understand. We didn't understand how you took it viral and got the growth. But we were really good at working with academics, PhDs and spin outs in the sort of deep tech space, which has traditionally, as you know, has taken uh, well, the belief is that it's taken a lot of time um, to commercialize a lot of this deep tech coming out of our great institutions in the UK market. Um, but we didn't quite believe that. And that's what essentially the last five years have been doing is looking at how can we speed up the impact that these great, like great technologies and science could have on the world. Um, and we adopted a load of like very well-known methodologies and playbooks from San Francisco from our time out there and essentially like tried to bring those digital strategies across. So essentially Luminous backs early stage, so series A, uh, late seed, so usually with a product coming to market um, in human health and we define human health as life sciences but not therapeutics, i.e we're not backing drugs, but more of the sort of AI machine learning automation platforms in life sciences, um, digital health. So therapeutics, diagnostics, all the stuff that you would expect, agriculture, food and wellness um, with a deep tech angle to it. So think frontier technologies, new stuff that's coming through, which usually mm. means it's coming out of a university spin out. Right. And how, how did how did you get into this? What's the journey that, that brought, brought you to, to to venture capital, but not just venture capital um, in such a sort of specific area? Um, very random, I think, Ben. I mean, I actually always wanted to be a VC, but um, had a I had a like a a tricky route getting there. Let's put it that way. So I started off in banking as a graduate um, from Exeter University. I then moved actually into financial PR doing tech IPOs. So the only bit of consistency probably in my whole CV is tech. Um, so banking to like doing financial PR and IPOs. So they crashed in 2000. I didn't think I was going to have a job. So I quickly moved into the corporate comms team. Um, and tried to save my ass from being fired. Um, and then from there, I literally like thought I knew everything there was to know about PR. Thankfully, my business partner was 10 years older and did know a bit more about PR. Um, and um, with Louise Ballard, we set up a, a PR agency that had two strands, which was one, this emerging UK tech scene. Um, 
And the second was Austria looking after some of the largest stocks in Austria. Um, we were very lucky. We got a really good sale on exit on that business. Um, Louise went to Grayling um, and I didn't really want to go to a big corporate. It wasn't my thing. So I managed to spin out some of the startup companies that they'd never heard of, had no interest in, and set up my second PR agency, communications agency, New York, San Francisco, and London, and just had a host of amazing startups, which at that time had never been heard, and now are some of the biggest names in the tech space. Um, that's essentially where I really learned how you grow businesses, what is like good venture capital, how to support founders. Um, I spent a lot of time, so five years, you know, in the valley and just learned from the best people. Mm. Um, and when I came back, I sold that business and I came back to the UK and I really wanted to get into VC, but um, interviewed at some of the UK venture funds and they were like, no, you don't have the skill set. Your exits don't count. They weren't a software. So as you would expect, that didn't hit me too hard. I just thought, that's fine. I can do a software. So I did a Docker containerization business with a very good friend of ours, um, two really good friends. And we managed to sell it within nine months to a company yeah. called Midvision and managed to like tick the box that I'd done the software play. Um, and then, you know, Life finally gives you, I mean, we tried to raise a fund that didn't work. Um, and then I got my lucky break into a Luxembourg um, VC fund uh, through a friend of mine from my Valley days. Um, and that's where I essentially learned the ropes on the VC side. And then I got, um, I got headhunted into White Cloud Capital to head up their early stage. But yeah, like a very a very untraditional um way into venture capital <laughs> and it sounds like you're quite um you, you've been quite sort of product focused is, is that from your sort of time in in um in silicon valley have you, have you know here has that that time been really formative of how you look at investing and look at developing com companies yeah like all of my thinking really comes from the valley and I, yeah. I guess it's true to say that I was fairly disappointed when I returned to the UK ecosystem. You know, it's developed so much and people have put in such hard work and the founders now are incredible in the UK. And, mm. you know, what what does 10 years do? It really changes the space. But um, most of our learning comes from there. So we're super founder friendly. One of the things mm. like our term sheets aren't about financial engineering to make sure that we come out. We're aligned with the founders. If we succeed, we all succeed. If we all fail, we all fail. We don't have mm. like liquidation preferences and all of that stuff. But I think also what's like probably more important and like the bit that I enjoy the most is supporting um, founders on that company building. So, you know, if you look at, Creation, um, creation, destru um, creative destruction labs, which is one of the the best like uh, ecosystems in the deep tech space for supporting mm. spinouts. They did this survey that looked at like why is the valley still so predominant when there's such great clusters in the UK and Europe and other places of the world where there's great institutions. And what their study found was that it wasn't lack of talent or the 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 ideas of the founders were better in the Valley, nor actually was it financing. Um, there was enough money in all of these areas that if you had good ideas, the big problem was um, what they call founder judgment. So in San Francisco, there's so many serial entrepreneurs that they know, or you can get mentors that know what to focus on to hit your next inflection points. And essentially, I see that in our portfolio. You know, we have a lot of first time founders in our portfolio that just don't know what to focus on and what's important. And that's what we like doing. It's just focusing on that company building side on how can we accelerate them quickly from where we invest to that next big milestone? What's important and what's not? What can they just cut mm -hmm. out, not do, leave to another day? And what do we have to get right? 
Um, yeah. And that's yeah. essentially what I learned in the Valley, like what's really important mm. versus like what's not. Yeah, it's it's a really different place, isn't it? You sort of look at like Silicon Valley and and the businesses were coming out of there. And I, I um, from from um, my experience at LinkedIn and our, our founder being Reid Hoffman, who is is like the, the godfather of um, startups in, in the Valley. And he's written great books about blitz scaling and, and different ways of, of getting getting past those points and and almost scaling in a way which which is which is completely mad. You, you wouldn't wouldn't normally plan to do it. But um, how does that sort of differ in in early stage healthcare startups is, yeah. is, it, is it sort of a different beast because i suppose there's there's less risks you can take really with 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 health there, there are but like across generally like the deep tech space like um the health but the life sciences i think um the ecosystem is 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 quite behind in terms of like enterprise or digital like consumer mobile companies and I think you know what I've been trying to test out is how many of like you know the the zero to one books the the you know the the Peter Thiel's or as you say uh, the Reid Hoffman brilliant podcasts like loads of those strategies there's now a very clear playbook for mobile internet businesses mm -hmm. and um, as you know, there's hundreds of books on it and great expertise from people like Reed who have obviously shared their experiences, learnings. And my view was a lot of that could be pulled across into the deep tech space. So, you know, when we when we first started investing, the model was, you know, you'd find a great PhD or an academic you'd give them two, three million, they'd go lock themselves in the lab and you'll be on this cycle without really finding product market fit. And as we all yeah. know from the books, you know, don't build tech, don't write code until you know what the product is. And so there was a lot that I tried to like bring across and say, well, why are we just building a load of code? Why are we writing that? Like, what is the product? What is the problem we're trying to solve? And yeah. actually, we can really speed up like how quickly we can get these companies to a series A and a series B by just bringing in these digital strategies that are, you know, mm. right there. But as you say, they are different beasts. They do have clinical trials and efficacy and FDA. And um, I think you're still able to go through all of that, which obviously the consumer and the regulators expect you to, but just with a much clearer idea of answering the right questions at the right time. So what is the product? Have we tested it? What is the reimbursement? What, you know, how, how do we take it to market? What are the partners? It's very much the same thinking, but just thinking about it a lot earlier in the deep tech space now. Yeah, yeah. I think that that whole thing of because um, I've done some 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 advising tops and and one for London City Incubator. It's looking at the academics, technology, and te taking their technology and creating startups with it. And that process of almost having it's it's having strong beliefs, um, but weakly held. So you so when you get new data and you get new information about the customer, you're able to pivot and you're able to actually sort of go in the right direction. Um, it's a hard thing when you're when you're sort of wedded to something that you've spent years putting together. Sorry, Jonathan. No, no, no. Just just raise a very interesting point. When talking to CEOs and founders of tech businesses, uh, one of the things uh, that, that they know they can develop is, is they're really good at their science or they know their technical area, but they're not particularly good at motivating and inspiring people, the, the, the IQ versus EQ one. What do you tend to do about developing the people you're investing in? Do you just leave them to get on as they are or do you actually, are you keen to develop them as leaders and do you bring in coaches to work with them? Yeah, like I, look, we, we really like our founders to stay with the business in whatever form that might take. Ideally, as the CEO still leading it, but that's not always the case. But as an evangelist or, you know, in a different role, new business development, like we're real believers that these are the people with the vision and the passion and that they need to be there. 
but it's a two-way journey um and we will help our founders as much as we can with a great chairman a coach a mentor um you know providing a load of books whatever it might take you know giving them um access to great founders from the valley or from other parts of the world that we know that can just you know help them get over a certain you know challenge or um wall that they need to climb but at the same time they also have to want to learn and to go on that journey because you know all of our founders that we back have a um an incredible knowledge of their sector expertise but suddenly you're asking them to learn about culture and people and okrs and marketing and sales and all of the other functions that come with running a business, which is often outside their comfort zone, and that the best CEOs that we back or the best founders are the ones that you know really get that it's a multifunctional team and um, skill set, and like just want to learn about it. And they really develop. They read up. They speak to experts in sales and marketing. They really begin to understand the questions that they need to ask to be able to put together the right strategies and to hire the right people and what good looks like. And I think that's often the challenge is like, you know, you you don't know what good looks like until you've seen it. What does a good marketing person look like to a bad one if you've never been in that in that situation before? And so we do help them a lot. And I think that's part of being you know, the the offer of what Luminous is, is that we don't do a load of deals. We're very much about picking founders that A, want to work with us and we want to work with them and we want to go on that long-term journey together. Mm. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work. Um, sometimes people mm. don't want to learn and they want to develop their skill sets. Yeah. We've had um, just a, a nice comment from Fred Becker saying that you're, um, you're a first-class operator, which is very nice. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. Um, I'd agree. Um, but Don, um, who listens uh, quite regularly, has asked a question, so I'll just bring bring that one up. And it was actually something I was going to go on to next, um, which would be part of a wider question of how you choose who to invest in. But when you invest, what's the balance between liking the idea and feeling it has potential, and liking being impressed by the people you're asking um, who are asking for funding? And that click 50, 50, 80, 20. So quite specific, but uh, it'd be good to sort of know how do, you, how do you choose who you invest in and what you invest in? Yeah, it's it's really people over anything else. So, um, you know, what you're looking for is just high performing teams and great mm. people that have resilience, they're humble, they want to learn, they're super smart, um, mm. and that they like and they're showing logic. I mean, um, I'll give you one example, you know, like sometimes you see financial models and you know they've got a burn of whatever it is, a hundred K, and then they say that they're gonna get to um, you know, a billion in revenue in five years' time, and yet the costs have only gone up by fifty K and you're like Wow. Okay, that's amazing. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> but like suddenly you just see that um, you know the logic and the thinking isn't there, and that's essentially mm. all we're looking at the early stage. And how quickly can people pivot? Because most of our companies, the idea that they pitch us at the seed, late seed stage, isn't going to be like how it is at Series B mm. or C. So, you know, you're looking for people that can work around data, as you say, on the product side, reiterate based on customer feedback quickly. Um, and, you know, you're, you're testing that very early on in that sort of, you know, when we're, when we're doing DD, it's very much around, are they showing the right logic and thinking? And I back a, like a great team that's got like, maybe not a, such a clear, brilliant idea, over a B team that's got a great idea, but they're never going to be high performing because a high performing team can just get itself out of trouble every single time. And that fits, Izzy, with, with what people often say when you're hiring. There's the old knowledge, skills, and attitude. Um, hire for attitude. Your attitude defines your altitude. But you know, if people have a bad attitude, however knowledgeable and skillful they are, it's good, they're going to alienate other people 
they're going to be toxic to work with and they're going to bring the organization down by being the bad apple. And so if people have a really good attitude, I mean, clearly if they have no skills and, and, and no knowledge whatsoever, then you're clearly an idiot, but uh, food on you. But I think if, if, if it's a fine choice, you know, go, go for the attitude. If, if head, someone said once it's the four quadrants, head, heart, gut, and wallet, that, you know, the, the logic of it, the 89 billion neurons, you're thinking about it, the heart, and as you know, as, as someone who's uh, done your uh, your course in in all that um, well-being and, and wellness and neurobiology, which we're going to talk about later, there's there's forty thousand neurons around the heart, so you're getting more signals from the heart than you are going from the brain to the heart. And then the gut, with hundred million neurons there, your gut instinct about people. And then the wallet, does it does it financially add up in your DD your due diligence? So I don't know where you like those. Head, heart, gut, and wallet. I love it. It's quite we a, might steal that for the website. That's a great do. way of summing it up. Please do. <laughs> um, I, 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 someone advised it to me, and I can't. No, I tell you who it was. It was Paul Chapman, uh, who's who's a very good headhunter, and uh, he recommended it to me. And how you how you hire someone? Head, heart, gut, and wallet. I like that. It's very true. Mm. Yeah. And on that, I've, I've, Don actually asked a second um, question, and that it's talking about sort of just people. Um, is there anything in particular you look for that that, that stands out for that for your um, your uh, people that you you look to invest in? Yeah, I, I think, um, and it's a really good question, Don, and certainly I, I can answer it from the sort of deep tech space. Um, in, in many ways, we almost take for granted that the science or the tech, the hard part of what these people are doing will, will work. If it doesn't, then it's going to zero anyway. So, um, you know, we do do our DD on it, obviously. We're not quite that random. But in many ways, that's the bit that I kind of presume they will get right. The bit that I'm really looking for, which stands me out, is their commercial expertise or their awareness that they don't have it but they filled the gaps with the right people or they know the right sort of people that they need to bring in and and often that is um you know just going deep with people on you know what your go-to-market strategy is what your reimbursement would be and really like understanding do they even understand what an fda process is or how to get a ce mark um and if they don't that's fine but the best ones are very, very aware of their knowledge and their, their lack of knowledge in a certain area, but they have really identified the top person that could be an advisor or could be a consultant or could be a full-time hire. And so they get you comfortable on, they know what good looks like. And, and this, this is one of my biggest phases, like, do you know what good looks like? And, and that's my mm. test all yeah. the time. Um, Izzy just reminds me, one of the people we had on, on an earlier Inspiring Leadership series was Nick Borwell, who was the principal of the Civil Service, Service College. And he picked up this concept, which is, again, quite simple, that um, the, the CEO is often the incomplete leader with a complete team. And they're always going to be work in progress, as you said. They, they can't master it all. It's such a range of skills you have to have in this modern era. And as another professor said, this is the slowest it will ever be today. It's the slowest it will ever be. And yes. so if you have uh, a leader of your tech company you're investing in, they need to surround themselves with an army of giants. And once or twice when I've been coaching some of these CEOs of the tech startups, they, they try and become the expert on everything and the god, the, the biggest figure in the room. And, and they burn themselves out because they cannot do everything. So they actually... They're actually paid to think, not to be busy. You need that thinking at a strategic yeah. level rather than getting in the weeds of everybody else's job. And if they haven't hired giants but hired metaphorical dwarfs because they don't want to be challenged, that's a problem. And equally, the other thing, finally, to add to what you just said, is that um, that great question you can ask CEOs, which someone uh, put in a Harvard article years ago, that question one to your CEO, when was the last time you were dead wrong? wait for the reply question two how quickly did you learn uh, the mistake and question three how quickly did you admit it to others and learn from it to move on and when you get the, the first answer being that oh don't you think 1984 or maybe no maybe I, I don't think i've ever been wrong then you know that's not one to invest in 
you, you want people to say, yeah, do you know what? Yeah, make frequent mistakes and I learn from them. I agree. But, um, back, back to you, Ben. Back to you. Thanks. Well, actually, just to finish off Dan's question, the one skill I think that's really underrated and actually I can't remember, but there was a blog about it last week in Forbes, I think, and um, it could have been Reed, actually. It was someone sort of famous um, talked about it. It's storytelling because mm. essentially like, a good CEO and founder needs to be able to storytell. And that's to, you know, often the talent that they're looking for is amazing people from the big Googles, Apples, LinkedIn of this world. And the reason they get this amazing talent is because they storytell about the impact that this company can have. But also likewise for investors and customers, if you can tell your story and get people passionate around it, at the early stage, that can do more good than nearly any other skill in the business. Um, you, you are so, you're so right. Just building on what you just said, one of the people who I have is a good friend, and we, we have check-ins quite frequently, is Matt Oppenheimer. Matt is the CEO. He's, he's over on the West Coast, and he's the CEO of Remitly. And if you go to Remitly's site, they, they produce apps that are on the phone for um, – immigrants who are working away from home from their families perhaps someone from indonesia away from their families trying to earn some money to send back to them and they used to get ripped off with western union and pay an absolute fortune and he wanted to make it easy for them so he did a video about working in the slums of nairobi and how he learned about this and he just thought this is something i can do and i really need to help these people for the people that they love and his video is so inspirational that i i just love talking to him and people you know, gather around him and Jeff Bezos has invested in him because he goes, this guy is really doing something and they're doing so well because of that storytelling, that that powerful reason why and a purpose that people want to work for that person. I agree. Yeah. You're spot on. Great. So um, what, what are you investing in the moment? What, what, what startups are you investing in? Yeah, so we have done, I think we've done Four or five five deals uh, during COVID. So wow, really? okay. um, we've been busy actually. Um, hmm. We've done so one of them is an ex Google team, and the company's called Temporal, and uh, very very bright ex Google team, um, very high up team that were running cloud that have left, and the the thing that their passion. Um, I won't say it wasn't cloud because it probably was, but their real passion was the people side. So um, Thomas, the founder, had built up a big team within Europe heading up the cloud sales team. And he liked the people side. So the technology they've built is dashboards, real-time dashboards to be able to look at performance, productivity, the health of your your employees around the world. Um, mm. And it's it's got indexes, it's so incredible what they can learn in terms of, you know, where there's issues, why people are not performing, what are they, what are they being productive on, you know, what are the, the products and the, the technology that they're using, how are they using it? Um, so it looks at sort of systems, people, uh, the whole entourage of data. Um, so we love that team. Um, we got introduced to them via Slack. And um, we just thought that they were just a phenomenal team. To give you an example, you know, Thomas and his co-founder Sanjay had built the product themselves over two years with 13 developers, put their own cash behind it. They didn't want VC funding. They were like, we're going on our own. We don't like VCs. I think it took me a year to get that deal. I was building up the trust with Thomas. And um, we couldn't have been, actually, that was... My last day before the Christmas break, Thomas finally said, yeah, I think we'll go with you. So that was That's a great deal. And um, a great reflection yeah. on you and your people side as well. Well, um, a lot of it. I mean, it's a long-term journey, as you know. Most of these companies don't exit for 10 years and you're kind of stuck with each other. So, you know, both sides need to be very, very comfortable with who they're, who they're picking. Uh, the second company again was a long-term relationship and a long-term, uh, long time coming. The company called Mahana out of uh, the US, um, backed by Lux Capital 
and Jazz Capital founder that we had known. Um, and they are doing a CBT treatment um, for gut, so for gastrointestine issues. So starting, um, yeah, with 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 gut, um, and then we'll extend on. But I, I love that because again, Jonathan, it goes to the link between the stomach and the head and the brain, and you know how that's all. Um, blending together the third deal we did was out of canada called uh, phenomic um which is in the life sciences space um using ai for drug discovery um mm. so and then we've we've done um two more small deals um we've got uh one big deal in the pipeline at the moment that we're super excited about as well um so it's been a really really busy time for us but again you know all sort of on thesis around people health and well-being productivity and performance yeah it's a real range of different different areas different subject areas isn't it so yeah. so, so one of the things i, I, I was wondering about is, is how do you avoid um another thranos or something like that how do you avoid those those um uh startups without without substance yeah, like, look, we we have to do quite thorough DD, of which um, I'm lucky my team is far brighter than I am. So um, we've got uh, many great PhDs within the team that can do all of that. We also obviously do external DD as well and bringing experts from, you know, whether it's on the AI machine learning side, whether it's, you know, on a specific area, but also on the commercial side. And, you know, because there's, there's some... Um, great technologies out there but when you actually look at like how will they get reimbursed will they ever be able to get a, a payee code in the US it actually starts to fall apart and so you know it's got to have all of those elements to be backable and a lot mm. of we a lot of that DD we can do in-house but we do also you know we tap into our mentors our advisors we speak to customers, you know, we get a very good sense of what's real and what's not. And, and most of these companies, as you can hear from uh, just a little bit earlier, we've known the founders and the companies for over a year, if not 18 months, all of the ones we've just done, it's between, it's probably about 12 to 18 months on all of them. So you get to know the people very well, you get to see if they execute, you know, do they deliver on the stuff that they say they're going to. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so so with um, the whole impact of COVID, what 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 sort of impact has that has that had on um, healthcare and, and healthcare investment? It must be pretty pretty um, significant. Yeah, we we kind of been you know one of only a few um, with you know Optum Ventures, which is United Health's VC arm, as sort of you know one of our favorite partners in the UK market but there's only been a few of us really you know focused on that healthcare human health elements and suddenly it's kind of top of thesis for a number of the limited partners obviously the people with the money that that put the cash into our funds very kindly um but you know it's top of mind for consumers the public everyone um so you know now we're starting to look a bit more popular than perhaps it was even nine months ago that we may have, you know, we may be onto something that's right. Um, and I think, you know, Ben, in all honesty, it, it just couldn't be better for consumers because suddenly the adoption of digital therapeutics, um, digital offerings, if you take even things like, you know, a doctor on demand, whether that's a Babylon or a push doctor or whatever, if you look at their numbers, Sort of 17 percent adoption prior to covid up to 80 odd percent now um so we're just speeding up that you know that virtual digital way of being able to do healthcare. and you know for mental health that's incredible because you know the, the lack of um therapists to be able to do mental health in asia but also in the us means that we need to turn to more virtual digital strategies to be able to meet the demand of what people require. So I'm super excited, actually. I think, um, you know, I think funding will hopefully be strong for these companies and people can see the benefit of, 
diagnostic companies, I mean, you, you mentioned Theranos. There are many incredible companies, including, you know, we've got uh, Vital within our portfolio. There's Osler out of Oxford that are doing what Theranos couldn't do, that are genuine, great businesses that would give you the ability to do blood testing at point of care. And that's really, really needed, you know, and that's what we saw with COVID. If you can't do the diagnostics, you can't control the spread of viruses or pathology or, um, uh, you know, in this case, viruses. So for me, that is a great example of where more investment needs to go. And hopefully people understand why um, and can get over the sort of Theranos story to back some of these businesses. And that, and that raises um, an, another interesting point. Um, my friend Ian Pierce, who's got this app that he's designed, I mentioned to you in conversation, uh, Neuroproactive, and it's NHS have now adopted it. It's just it's going mental, and it's, you know, Europe-wide. Um, and now he's discussing with America and all sorts. But but he's saying that you know we, we need the Apple the Apple Watch or wearable technology to have things which can take your blood pressure and do more things and, and and how how close do you think we are to that you know because you you spent a year doing one of the top courses in um uh, health coaching and wellness tell, tell us a bit about that course but also just be interested in in what you think is coming down the line with technology and what we'll be able to wear and know about ourselves and there's my mother-in-law for example with alzheimer's copd um, heart problems you know what can she be wearing so we could know about her vitals and all those statistics rather than try and take her to a, a, a hospital where she might get COVID-19 and die can we not do this more remotely so yeah. over to you it's a big area I mean there's so much that is coming as you know from whether that's blood pressure but also um great hardware devices that can listen in a room uh, they're looking for everything from how many times the toilet got flushed breathing um, also visitors so you know did that person have visitors was the tv on and you can see that being used in um, in a number of situations but particularly with our parents where you just want to know that they're okay, they don't have any problems. And also, you know, using AI, being able to just check whether that's abnormal or normal and, and then what course of action you want to take as your intervention. Um, I, I think, you know, in, in our view, we've had sort of health 1.0, which essentially been, you know, the first reiteration of, um, I guess, like the bricks and mortar doctor surgery going onto the digital platform. And it's very much been a copy, as you know, like if you go onto these services, you get your 10 minutes like you would in a typical doctor surgery. And, you know, they'll prescribe you whatever you might need and you can go pick that up or have it delivered. You know, 2.0 for us is very much around deep tech and exactly what you're saying, looking at more biomarkers, pulling that in with machine learning and AI to be able to predict, um, but also track. So you can do a lot more prevention rather than just sick management. Um, and that's the shift that's now taking place. And that's what like we're super excited about is actually um, COVID has speeded up a lot of the, the, the adoptability of that and the big health providers to want to be able to, you know, whether that's the NHS or United or whoever in the US, it speeded up their desire to want to engage with the startups and adopt this stuff. Yeah, it's a perfect yeah. time. What, what do you think, Ben, with your microbiology background? Yeah, I, I think that um, I think you're right. The the, the positives <laughs> that have come out of, of of the crisis are it's unbelievable that although. Um, everybody knew that this was something that was going to happen. A pandemic was um, almost 100% guaranteed to happen at some point. Um, uh, and we were just very badly prepared. And, and I think that um, that hopefully it, uh, the positive that comes out of that is that we will invest in the right things, invest in the right um, future technologies for 
stopping these things quicker and and stopping the spread quicker but um what stops us um from slipping back <laughs> that's what i wonder about it's uh it's quite easy to just slip back into uh oh everything's fine now so we're all all back out there and um not not taking the right precautions well it was, it was interesting yeah it was interesting <laughs> Izzy, in your earlier conversation when you did this course and you know it's in new york some of the, the best people talking to you and you're learning from them. I, I was fascinated. I had a cancer scare a year and a half ago and was waiting for the biopsy and things. And while I was waiting to know what was going to happen to me, I read every book I could find around the topic, from audiobook, because that's my way of learning, because I'm slightly dyslexic, so listening to things. You know, How Not to Die and the Blue Zones and all about the microbiome and met the professor who's a bit of an expert, uh, Lawley, uh, Dr. Lawley from from Sanger, who was talking about the holobiome and things like that, which I found really interesting. And, and I went vegan for a year uh, to, to sort of try, try it through. And, and I'm just interested in the way things are going. You mentioned about Boris and obesity, and, you know, people are starting to take it seriously. I think the, the things you were saying is very interesting. Do you want to just pick up on those points you were telling Ben and myself in our earlier yeah. conversation? Yeah, so... Um... You know, essentially, like between a an earnout year where I wasn't, you know, I was basically stuck. I decided to do a course which is called the IIN out of New York, which is the biggest school for wellness coaches. Um, and um, it's actually turned out to be a great investment. I did it because I was just super interested, <laughs> um, but actually, it's come like more and more into my work as the years have gone on. But like like you, Jonathan, I was like, you learn about the body, uh, diets, but a lot around the microbiome, um, blue zones. And I got fascinated by blue zones and, you know, what makes these little sort of pockets of villages or whatever it might be live to over over 100 and as you know some of them had many many over 100 to like 107 it was crazy and if you look at them it was like an amazing similarity in terms of you know different but similarity in the characteristics so that got me really fascinated in longevity um mm -hmm. and you know I, I studied a huge amount then around the sort of longevity um aging um and and you know how you can sort of change your lifestyle to be able to you know try to live as well for as long as you can but as we all know the one thing that the the inn um really stresses is that everyone's different so you know what is one person's answer is another person's poison and I'm a big believer in that. That's why, you know, I think it's very much around personal choice, but also understanding your body in terms of whether being a vegan or a raw diet or whatever it might be is the right one for you. Um, and there's this Harvard team that are doing some really exciting stuff around. They've been studying for the last like 13 years, um, the different effects of food on us individually. So if we all ate a hamburger, you know, how quickly does that go through each of our bloods? How does it affect our metabolism? You know, how does it convert into fat and how does it differ? And that stuff I'm like, I'm super fascinated about. And I think um, diet and food going forward is going to be a, just a great area of investment. I mean, the money that goes into weight loss at the moment, but we still don't really understand like you know changing people's habits and understanding it and um looking at alternative meats and alternative like cheeses i just think it's going to be you know the next 10 years around food is going to be huge and we need it for sustainability and for we, saving our environment well we certainly do and, and i wonder if um you came across this book uh, the health revolution by maria borelius and she's swedish uh, and it's it's all about anti-inflammatory. Yeah. yeah. And I found all the different things I was reading, the message seemed to be an anti-inflammatory life. And everybody's different from each other. I didn't I didn't stay with vegan for it. Had didn't have the right kind of effect on my stomach and things. But I can see that the principle. I'm, I'm generally much much healthier in my eating. But I found this this whole area of anti-inflammatory. And even I then connected with my army friends. So 
one of the generals who's been on this series, um, who Ben knows, James Bashel. He, like me, is 58. He's the commandant of the physical training corps. And they said, well, boss, make sure you don't do junk miles. He said, what's junk miles? He said, well, look, you know, if, if you're running over 5K, it's quite inflammatory. In the marathons you did when you were a young lad, very inflammatory for your body. So you think it's good for you, but actually in some ways it's not. So now I don't do more than 5Ks. It's part of my HIIT training. I do HIIT training, which is very, I find very useful. But I just found that whole thing of anti-inflammatory interesting. What have you found in your research and what you're investing in? Are people getting that message? I don't know if we're there yet on, I mean, sort of. I mean, the microbiome's obviously linked hugely to inflammation. But if you look at the link between uh, inflammation and the diseases from Alzheimer's to, I, you know, like it's a huge list of um, conditions that, you know, essentially are, I mean, cancer is, again, you know, it's inflammation in the body. But we have so many lifestyle challenges, whether that's food and exercise, pollution, stress, they're all, you know, are all playing on how the body is responding to inflammation. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it's very much about how quickly can you get it reduced in order to stop something major happening where the body just, you know, can't fight anymore. Yeah, that's awesome. awesome. Um, And as we're sort of just wrapping up, we always just sort of go through these these quick fire questions. Um, really sort of finding out some of the um, sort of habits that have made you successful um, over the years. So, um, and I think that we touched quite a lot on the healthy side, but but given the the crisis and, and the stress that people have been under through throughout this lockdown, is there any advice you'd give to people on how to stay healthy, both sort of mentally and physically through, through these sort of stressful periods of time? Yeah, look, I think it's been hard for everyone. I mean, I haven't stuck to my routines that I would usually do. Um, I think, you know, it's been super difficult. But again, it's just eating wholesome food, uh, getting outside. And I'm a big believer that, you know, if it's just walking, being in nature, um, either things you love, like I, I don't think you have to go for a 10K you know, run, just get out and move. I'm a big believer in just movement, you know, turn the music on, dance around, whatever just makes you feel good and gets those endorphins going. Um, drink yeah. plenty of water and try and get the sleep in. I mean, I'm a real basic person. I grew up on a farm with, you know, a very farming mother. Uh, my grandmother lived to a hundred and a half. Um, and it was, you know, really basic, simple you know, food, exercise and country living. And, you know, I still live by a lot of those principles. Mm. It's nothing, I don't believe in much fancy stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Great advice. I love I love the fact that you, you put in there that sort of decompression time and, and just going, right, I'm just going to pop the music and have a bit of a dance around. <laughs> it's a, a great idea. And the standing desk, Ben, you know, get, get the Yeah, I know. I've got yeah. this, this um, yeah. ratchet standing desk. I find standing most of the day doing these damn Zoom calls. I'm less of a zombie by the end of the day. I think they said if you're sitting most of the day for a number of hours, your um, your chances of anxiety and depression is something like 34% higher than by using the standing desk and being up and down and changing it around. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing. Ben, so yeah, I need to get one of those. Oh, helping wise, helping wise. Yeah, yeah. So, um, just helping on the wealthy side, lots of people out there who who are going through some tough times, uh, and we always ask, is there any um, good advice that you give about money or um, or investment? Um, probably not really. Other than again, very basic advice that I learned when I was growing up, which was, you know. I, my lifestyle, I can take it down to very minimal. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't particularly get blown away by materialism. So we know that we can live very, very comfortably on very little, to be honest. Um, and, you know, try not to get majorly into debt, just keep reducing your costs down um, and enjoy the free things in life. Like I think, you know, we've lost a lot of pleasure from 
you know, just the free walks in the countryside, the seaside or, you know, being with your family and your friends. And I think, um, you know, re, re, um, like trying to like get back to that and some of the pleasures that you have as a child instead of, you know, I've gone through the stages in London where, you know, you just over shop and you have to have stuff to be able to fill a void um, that you're trying to fill. So I don't have a lot of like tips on, on wealth other than, um, you know, don't try and follow people then have to impress. And finally, is there um, any piece of wisdom that you sort of strive to, to, to live your life by? Um, I'm pre- I, I mean, in all honesty, I'm, I'm pretty laid back. Um, and I'm a big believer that, you know, when one door shuts, another one opens. Um, I trust in the universe. I really do that things happen for a reason. Um, and when, even when you can't quite see why something good or bad is happening, just believe in the timing and believe that, um, you know, that there's a reason for it. And, you know, I've lived with that and not tried to get too stressed or anxious by stuff not going according to my time frames in my head. And um, that's helped me a huge amount, like just get through challenging times. Amazing. It's been really good speaking to you, um, Izzy. It's been been, been fascinating. Um, I think Jonathan's got a, a final a final thought. Yeah, I'm really grateful, Izzy. As you could tell with Ben and I, we were so animated by the things you talked about and you raised, we could have carried on. I think the time was up. So there we are. But once again, really grateful to you, Izzy. Um, Fantastic. And uh, we'll be talking again soon. Thank Thank you you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.